I personally believe in anybody that ends up in hell chose it. God doesn't come down and put you in a headlock and make you repent. You are convicted for your sin and you choose whether or not to turn to him. So there you have it. That's the best answer I have for that. God gave us free will. Now, here's another question. Where in the Bible does it talk about baptizing children? Is it biblical to do so, and at what age should a child be baptized? Right? Here's the answer. The baptism of children and even infants, newborns, has long been a practice within much of the church. From at least the third century onward, Christians baptized infants as standard practice. And I'm talking about when they were eight days old. They would baptize these infants, either sprinkle them or immerse them. I tend to think sprinkle them when they were eight days old. You're not ready to be put under. Amen? Now, today, parents are obliged to see that their infants are baptized within the first few weeks. And if the infant is in danger of death, then it's to be baptized without any delay. Bring that child before that child dies to us and let us baptize that child because they believe in baptismal regeneration. That is that when you are baptized in water, it plays a part in the salvation of your soul. And we don't believe that. We believe the blood of Jesus is what saves your soul. Not going down in water. And I know this is an old worn analogy, but it's a good one. If you have somebody on death row and I'm allowed to go in there and share the gospel with them, and they repent and turn to Christ, and I can't get them to water before they are executed, do they go to hell or heaven? Of course they go to heaven. Because water does not save you. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. But much of the church does and did and always has. Around the 16th century, a group called the Anabaptists, not Anti-Baptists, but Anabaptists, sprang up. Now that name, it comes from a Greek word, Anna. The first three letters there, Anna, means over again. So the whole idea of Anabaptists is baptized over again. And this name was given them by their enemies in reference to the uh, practice of rebaptizing converts who already had been baptized as infants. Why would they baptize converts who had already been baptized as infants because they don't believe, they didn't believe that the baptism was real. The, the baby had no idea what he or she was doing. Anabaptists require that baptismal candidates be able to make their own confessions of faith and so rejected baptism of infants, which I agree with. I believe you ought to be water baptized when you understand what you're doing. We we have done what Anabaptists did from time to time. We'll have somebody come up and say, you know, I was baptized in water uh, way back when, but I had no clue what I was doing, and I sure wasn't saved. And so we will at that point say, well, then be baptized again. But the Anabaptists, they got persecuted. Many of them were martyred, killed for this practice of rebaptizing people. They were martyred by the Roman Catholics and by some wings of the Protestant church. Now, though the Bible doesn't give us an age for water baptism, I believe that as long as the child can understand the meaning of water baptism, simply that we are baptized into his death and raised to walk in newness of life, that they are old enough to be baptized. 
but not until then. So you can have a three-year-old who can understand what you're telling them, and if they can look at me and say, Pastor Jeff, I understand. I'm, I've died with Jesus and been raised with Jesus, and this is a picture of that, buried with him by baptism into his death, raised to walk in the newness of life, then I'll say, you're going, you're going under. Let's take the plunge. But if a kid says to me, I, I really don't get it, then I say, Let, let's wait, Johnny. Let's wait, Susie. Let's wait until you can understand it. Because once you understand, then you're doing it with knowledge, and it's real. Now, that's where we stand with it. Now, here's the next question. Why is there a discrepancy in the names of Jesus' lineage? I hate lineages. When I do the call-in show uh, where people call in from around the nation, and I do it right back here in, the, in my office, and I do it with Calvary Radio Network, and we're on there for an hour, and we get calls from around the nation. Anytime it's a lineage question, I defer it to the guy, the other guy that I, I do it with. Because I, I don't like, lineage just bore me. I'm just being honest with you. So-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot. So-and-so, I don't care, I don't care. But lineages, lineages really do carry some, some truth. And a lot of the, the, the critics of the Bible will attack what is found in lineages. And, and here's an example, this question. And let's go on with what they said. For example, in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says, quote, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. That's how you say that, I believe. Eli, the son of Eli. Now notice, in Luke 3.23, we're told that Joseph's dad is Eli. Okay? But then, you come to Matthew 1.16, and it reads, quote, And Jacob begot Joseph. Huh? Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, you'll have your atheist types and your Bible critics types, and, and they'll look at those two verses. They see there, the Bible's inconsistent. The Bible has got mistakes, so you can't rely on the rest of it. But ah, when you ask God to show you what is confusing you, he will always clear it up. So, this person's question was, was his dad Eli or Jacob? Which was it? Well, there are two records in the Bible of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. One is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, that we just quoted from, and the other is in Luke, chapter 3, that we just quoted from. One of the most widely held explanations for those two names is that Matthew's account follows the lineage of Joseph. Jesus, I don't know what stepfather, Jesus, it wasn't his real father, Joseph's dad, okay, but not the one who sired him because God did. But Matthew's account follows the lineage of the man, Joseph, while Luke's genealogy follows the lineage of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now follow closely. This interpretation would mean that Jacob was Joseph's biological father. Jacob was the real one, his, his daddy, and Eli, Mary's biological father, became Joseph's surrogate father, thus making Joseph Eli's heir 
through his marriage to Mary. He was his father-in-law. That's it. Because he lived with them. And so it was very common in those days, if you live with the father-in-law, was father. It's just, it wasn't, it's not that big of a deal. If Eli had no sons, this would have been the normal custom to call Joseph son. Also, if Mary and Joseph lived under the same roof with Eli, his son-in-law would have been called son and considered a descendant by marriage. It's just that simple. It's really not confusing, and it's not a contradiction. It just helps to understand the customs of those days, the way things were done. Although it would have been unusual to trace a genealogy from the mother's side, there was nothing usual about the virgin birth. Okay? So it's just a matter of semantics here. He didn't have, the Bible didn't say he had two dads. Now, I don't know if that blesses you, but the, I, I hope the person that asked that is here. You better be here, because I work to answer that question for you. <clears throat> All right. Now we're, now we're going to get interesting. Question, is, is there a scripture in the Bible that supports women deacons? The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.12, now this is their question, let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. Now if you read that, and that's all you read about deacons in the Bible, then you have to assume that all deacons were male husbands of one wife. Okay? There are essentially two passages in the Bible, in the New Testament, in which a case could be made for women deacons in the New Testament. Romans 16, verse 1, and 1 Timothy 3, 11. You can look at them both up, but I'm going to take Romans 16, 1, and just show you how there was a female deacon in the Bible. Romans 16, 1 and 2. Here's what it says. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria. All right, so notice it, it brings out a, a woman, Phoebe. Phoebe played a huge role in the New Testament church. Phoebe is called a servant. And he goes on in verse 2, that you may receive her. Look at, look at how he expects this woman to be received. Receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. And assist her in whatever business she has need of you. Now notice. This Phoebe is going to visit the church and tell them what she needs, and they're going to do it. So this woman had C-L-O-U-T. Are you there? For indeed, she has been a helper of many, and of myself also. How many of you think Paul thought something of this woman? Now, Paul is all the time by Bible critics called a chauvinist. He is, he is called all kinds of names. One of them, a chauvinist, an anti-woman man, because some of what he taught has been misinterpreted and misrepresented. But here he is saying, this Phoebe is on her, on her way to, to spend some time with you, and I want you to receive her with honor. I want you to receive her with respect, because she has done a great work for us, and whatever she asks of you, I want you to give it to her. Now, that's honor. Now, Remember in the verse, he called her a servant. The word for servant here is the same Greek word 
used for the office of deacon. It's called diakonon is the Greek word. Diakonon or diakonos, and it means servant. And the same word is used to describe deacons. Deacon in the Greek language is diakonon or diakonos. This is so real and, and so um, secure that the New Living Tra Translation, which I use all the time, the NLT version, went so far as to translate this passage the following way. Quote, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a what, everybody? Now, that's how the New Living Translation is a... I got five of you saying it. The rest of you, it's stuck right here. Let's say it again. Who is a... This woman was a deacon. The New Living Translation translators were so sure of that that they went ahead and said, let's don't even call it servant. Let's go ahead and put the word deacon, diakonon, diakonos, deacon, because that's what she was. In the church, welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many and especially to me. So there you have it. She's a deacon. Now keep in mind that the entire ministry of deacons was launched in Acts 7. So the practical needs of widows were met. It had nothing to do with teaching the word, nothing to do with exercising spiritual authority over the man, which Paul forbids clearly, irrefutably, in 1 Timothy 2.12. We're not talking about a woman being a pastor. We're talking about a woman being a deacon. Can I say deaconette? just so you won't forget, okay, or deaconess. So we're not talking about a woman exercising spiritual authority over men in the ministry of the Word in a pastoral setting. We're talking about a deacon, a servant, and that's what Phoebe was. So we have two deacon uh, S's here, and that's probably what got the question here because they were up here and we laid hands on them along with all the rest of the men. And there were probably people thinking, well, wait a minute. What is a woman doing as a deacon? There you have it. I would never have done it if I hadn't seen it in the Word. Okay? Hence, I see no issue with a woman serving as a deacon in the church. And moving right on to the next question. When do you know you're dating the right person? I don't know. Let me move on to the next one. i got to get into this dating thing. Okay, here we go. When do you know you're dating the right person? And then, when do you know it's right to marry said person? Okay, let me, let me weigh it out in the water here. Unfortunately, there is no Bible verse that says, Thou shalt marry Bill. How many of you ever looked for that verse? And, or, Mary is my choice for you. How many of you ever wish there was a verse that told you? But the Bible is clear on certain prerequisites for the person a Christian should date and marry. And, and you know, I'm, I'm continually amazed at how Christian people who have been in church for a number of years still get this mixed up. So I'm just going to lay it out. And then you can chew the meat and spit out the bones. And you can go out and live by it, or you can reject it. But if you reject what I'm about to say, you'll shed some tears somewhere down the road. Now, here we go. First, Everybody say they must. This is irrefutable. I'm going to be dogmatic about this. I am not going to budge one inch on this. They must be 
a committed, born-again, blood-washed, Holy Ghost Christian. They must be. You all know this verse, but I'm going to read it. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, he didn't say you might want to pray about not doing it. He didn't say you might want to consider whether or not to go that way. He said, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Everybody say, none. And what communion has light with darkness? None. None. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Now, so they must be born again. That doesn't mean having their bodies sitting in a church. That's not what that means. That means you ought to be able to look the person that you're considering. And by the way, let me just make it a little tougher. I wouldn't even go out with somebody. I wouldn't consider marrying. Why waste your time? Why waste your time? If somebody asks you out, immediately say, would I marry this person? Nope. No. I don't date. I'm serious. Because why waste your time? Why go through all the hassles and heartaches and struggles and all that goes along with the relationships if you already know, I wouldn't marry this dude. I wouldn't marry this woman. That'll get rid of a lot of them for you right there. Okay? But when I say they got to be a born-again believer, I don't mean churched. I mean you ought to be able to look the person who you would consider marrying in the eye and say, tell me when you were saved. And if they resent that question, that's a huge flag right there. Because anybody that's been born again will tell you. I've been born again. I can tell you where. I can tell you how it happened. I can tell you what happened in my life afterwards. I went through a huge change. I was born again. Anybody, listen, that's the most important question you can ask them. Not where did you graduate from. Not what are you going to do in your career. But tell me when you were saved. You ought to have a good talk right there. Have a testimony meeting. And if they hem and haw and stammer and err and uh, well, I go to church. I didn't ask you that. I want to know when Jesus came into your heart. I want to know when you got saved. I want to know when the Spirit of God filled you. I want to know what happened to you. They ought to give you a clear testimony. And then you them. If they can't do that, what fellowship has light with darkness? Because you're going to have kids one day. And if they're not saved, if they're church but not saved, because there are a lot of people, church folks, who are not saved. I'm going to say that again. There's a lot of people sitting in church pews that have never been born again. Unfortunately, there's preachers behind pulpits who have not been born again. So just because they're in a church doesn't mean they're saved. You want somebody who will raise your children in the fear and admonition of Jesus Christ. Christ. Uh, I, I've had people come to me, precious people. I'm not in any way making fun, but precious people who, who decided that they had fallen in love with, with somebody in Islam or a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. I say, stop. What are you telling me? Well, I'm telling, me that, I'm telling you that love will prevail. No, it won't prevail. And dear, you 
won't change them. What is it, what's that old song? My mama told me, you better shop around. Even when you go to get a new car or a used car, you kick the tire. You look under the hood. You're going to be with them for the rest of your life. And wherever they are, they're going to take you in a marriage. The two shall become one. So here comes little Johnny and Susie. And, and you want to take them to a Christian church. They want to take them to a Muslim church, Jehovah's Witness church, Mormon church. And it splits the family. Oh. Second, look for character. When it comes to relationships, the character of the person is second only to their salvation. I'm going to say that again. You better look for character. Kick that tire. Look under the hood. Hang around long enough to see who they really are before you let yourself fall in love. Because once you're in love, you're deaf, dumb, and stupid. Nobody can tell you anything. And believe me, I've tried. Once you're in love, it's over. Once you're in love, nobody's going to talk you out of anything. So be wise up front and look for character. Even if somebody has a great personality, good looks, man, they're good looking, they're fun, they make you laugh, they're fun to be around, that doesn't say anything about their character. It's going to be hard, if not impossible, to develop a meaningful or lasting relationship if there's no depth of character in them. Because people get to know each other by spending time together. You should build a real friendship with them before pursuing romance. I believe the best romances are friendships first. You ought to, you ought to just go places with them, listen to them talk, spend time with them, maximize talk, minimize touch. I'm wondering how far I should go here. I'm telling you, maximize talk. You don't get to know somebody by touch. You get to know somebody by talk. You get to know somebody by listening. You don't get to know somebody by touch. The world says, hit the sack and then get to know them. Jesus says, get to know them, marry them, then go to bed with them. That's what the Bible says. So you spend time with them. You watch the way they do under pressure situations. Look at how they handle their money. Let me just show some things. Watch for things like respect. Oh, listen to this one. Watch whether or not they respect you, your values, your Christian convictions. Do they respect them or do they resent them? Watch for whether or not, listen, next to love, respect is the most important thing in a relationship. If, if there's no respect, there's no real love. Lady, listen, if he doesn't respect you, your Christian convictions, your decision to be moral, your decision to walk with Jesus as Lord of your life, if he doesn't respect that, then you got your answer. Stability in their walk with Christ. Were they going to church before they knew you? Or did they scoot into church as soon as they knew you were a church girl or a church guy? <laughs> Golly, it's quiet. Woo! But 
did they have a stable walk with Jesus? And I'm talking about for a few years before you came along. Were they in church? Were they faithful? Can, can, can you talk to their friends, their parents, their pastor about them? Or were they Johnny come lately to church? Well, she's there, so I'm going to church. They're not converted to Jesus. They're converted to you. How about moral purity? Do they have moral purity? How they handle their money? Well, that's a big one. You better look at how they handle their money. Because the way they handle it now is the way they're going to handle it after you're married. These are the issues, just some of the issues, that, that matter for a lifetime. You ought to be very discriminating. I'm just being hit with waves of uh, something. But, you know, gosh, I've been pastoring a long time, and I've seen so many, I've seen great decisions and great marriages. I've seen terrible decisions. And, and what we, I, I counseled a couple one time who wanted me to marry them, and I put them through a test. And it was a great test. It, it, it showed compatibility and all those other things. And, and the, the woman that gave him the test came back to me and said, Pastor Jeff, you better stop this at all costs. Tell them they should not get married. I told them. And I said, listen, the girl that, that gave you the test is so sure about this, I'm not doing the wedding. They said, well, then we're going to get married anyway. We're going to the justice of the peace. I said, okay. The, the blood's off my hands. Go ahead. And they did. And they came back to church. It wasn't but a few months later we used to have pods, pastor of the day, pods, pastor of the day. They would do hospital visits and all that. And I would come in on Tuesdays and see what all the pods had come up with, had encountered. And this one said they were in church sun, Sunday morning. She shot him Sunday night. Yeah. That's what it said. And I, I thought I was reading it wrong. No, I was reading it right. They were in church Sunday morning. She shot him Sunday night when he came walking in the door. Right under his heart, he lived. And I got to say it, went back with her. You shoot me, I'm gone. You shoot me, I'm gone. Sayonara, adios. I'm just happy to be alive. That's cause for divorce. Boom. There are some people that just shouldn't be together. <laughs> I tell you these stories. This is what you get for coming Wednesday nights. You get the inside scoop. As the two of you experience things together, you're going to gradually discover the truth about each other's morals, values, attitudes, and how they treat other people. Very important. How do they treat their mother? How do they treat their dad? How do they treat their friends? How do they treat you after a period of time? This will help you decide whether or not to go beyond the stage of friendship. In Galatians 5.22, the Apostle Paul gives a list of positive qualities. These are the kind of qualities you ought to be looking for. You know what they are. Love, joy, peace, uh, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the kind of thing you're looking for. 
These are the characteristics that, that make or break a relationship. Once these characteristics are clear and you've had time to truly know each other and how you are together, the decision to marry is much easier. Okay? But please be discriminating. Be wise. Be wise. Now, here's another question. What is the, boy, we're going from one major topic to another. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and is this a one-time event? Boy, is this divisive in the church. Is this a biggie in the church? Let me go into it. Here's the answer. The term baptized with the Holy Spirit, as opposed to filled with the Holy Spirit, occurs several times in the Bible. Here's some examples. Matthew 3, verse 11, John the Baptist talking. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. Greek word baptizo means totally immersed. I immerse you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He, of course it's Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there's that word, baptizo. He will totally immerse you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Mark 1.8, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then Luke 3.16, basically, he's saying the same thing. Look at the very end of it. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit can be and often is a secondary experience with the Holy Spirit of God. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. It happened to me. I was saved in juvenile home when I was 16 years old. But I've got to be honest with you. When I was 18, I went to a meeting. And when I was at that meeting, I had an experience with the Holy Spirit that was light years beyond what I had experienced when I got saved in juvenile home. I'm just being honest with you, and I can show you this scripturally. I want to be careful here. When I say I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, what I mean, well, let me just show you something. In John 20, verse 22, Jesus commanded the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, let's quote Jesus. Let's quote the word. It says, and when he had said this, what did he do? He breathed on them and said to them, what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, when he did that, were they saved? Yes, they were saved because you can't receive the, the Holy Spirit unregenerate. They were saved. They've been walking with him for three and a half years. If they're not saved yet, they ain't going to get saved. Walking with Jesus three and a half years. But he said, receive the Holy Spirit, and they did. Now, the disciples had to have been saved at this point since the Holy Spirit can't be received by the unregenerate. Now, Later in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, we read, Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you've heard from me. I've already told you about it, he's telling them. I've already told you about it. Then look what he said. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them on the day of Pentecost, were they saved? Well, they better have been. We can conclude that when a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit, he has power 
bestowed upon him. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I'm going to say that again. Jesus said, I'm quoting Jesus, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This power is for the purpose of the preaching of the gospel, living a pure life, and having a deeper devotion to God. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. Also, it is frequently accompanied by speaking in tongues. Acts 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the testimony of Pentecost. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. As the Spirit was giving them utterance, which leads me to the next question. I know you're already thinking it. Is speaking in tongues the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is that what you're telling me, Pastor Jeff? What does the Bible say about praying in tongues? Now, if you're from a Baptist background, or really a, a denominational background, you were very probably taught that tongues passed away with the first century. It's no longer real. The gifts passed away. And so essentially, God thrust us in the world with no power to fight a powerful devil. And tongues were so divisive. Man, if you want to bring division, just go somewhere and talk about Go to a pastor's meeting and talk about tongues. Go to a denominational meeting and even say the word tongues, and you may get out alive. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to just tell you what I see in the Bible. And by the way, my Greek teacher, when I went through Greek, my Greek teacher was completely anti-tongue. And we used, to, we used to lock horns about this. He, and he was brilliant. He was a brilliant man. But he would tell me, Jeff, you're the best charismatic I've, I've ever known, but you still got this loopy thing about tongues. He said, don't tell me that that gibberish is of God. That's what you tell me. That's what they all call it, gibberish. You know that, gibberish. Boy, did we get into some heated debates. Now, here's what the Bible says. I don't believe, first of all, the gift of tongues is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, the most spiritually gifted church in the New Testament, and he asked a rhetorical question. He said, do we all have the gift of healing? No. Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret the unknown languages? Of course not. The answer is no. Yet the Corinthian church was the church he wrote to about the gifts of the Spirit. They were flowing in the gifts of the Spirit. They were all about moving in the power of God. Yet he said to them, do all speak with tongues? No. The true evidence of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life is the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, to 23 that you already mentioned. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith. Against such there is no law. That's the evidence of being filled with and under the control of the Holy Spirit. The fruit. Gifts are sown. Fruit is grown. Now, what are tongues? There are two kinds of tongues found in the Bible. The first type is the ability to speak in an earthly dialect one has never learned for the purpose of declaring the glory of God, 
and the gospel of Christ. This first type is what happened at Pentecost. It says on hearing the disciples all speaking in tongues, 120 of them all speaking in tongues, those gathered from around the world on the day of Pentecost said, quote, and we all hear these people speaking in our, what everyone, own languages about the wonderful things God has done. What were they doing? They were glorifying God, but they were speaking in languages they'd never known. Like if I took off right now in Russian, and there was a Russian-speaking person in here who was lost, and suddenly I went into Russian and shared the gospel with them, that would be a manifestation of the gift of tongues that was manifested at Pentecost. The second type of tongues is found in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, which says, quote, for if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking to who everybody say it, only to God. Since people won't be able to understand you. Now catch that. Catch that last part. People won't be able to understand you. So he's not talking about an earthly dialect. Because people can't understand you. That verse saved me from my Greek professor. Because he could not answer that. Because clearly Paul is talking about a manifestation of tongues, what they call gibberish, which is really a language that God understands, but people don't. That's what he's, I mean, it's right there for everybody to look at. There he is right there. This is in the revised Wickwire version. This is the Bible. I'm just showing it to you out of the New King James. There it is. You will be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious. That's the end of the verse. You will be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious or unintelligible to human beings. So here we have a manifestation of tongues that no man can understand. Folks, it's right there. I, I, if, if that makes you stumble... Quit it. Get over it. It's right there. No man can understand it. Hence, it can't be an earthly dialect, but a heavenly one that only God understands. It is this type of tongue that may also manifest in corporate gatherings. Paul again writes to the Corinthian church, quote, If anybody speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three, or, or two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Now stop right there. If this is the manifestation of the tongues that is an earthly dialect, why do you need an interpreter? Let me ask another question. Was an interpreter needed at the day of Pentecost? No. They all heard these men speaking in a language they never learned but it was an earthly dialect. They heard it in their own language, and they gave glory to God for it. There was no need for an interpreter. So here he is saying, this kind of tongue that can happen in a corporate gathering, you need an interpreter. Why do I need an interpreter? Because it's a heavenly language, and therefore it takes a spiritual gift to interpret the heavenly language into intelligible language so that humans can be edified. Now, if this, as some claim, is talking about the first kind of tongues, this is what I just talked about, where a person speaks in an earthly dialect, 
They wouldn't have needed an interpreter. It's an earthly dialect. There was no interpreters on the day of Pentecost. But if the tongue spoken is an unknown tongue, the supernatural gift of interpretation, Paul mentions, is needed so that everybody can understand what was said. Look what he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 28. If there is no interpreter, let him, the one who is speaking in tongues, keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to who? God. So, I'm giving you something to think about because some of you have been taught against it. I have a prayer language. I got a prayer language before I knew it was wrong. When I got, when I had that experience when I was 18 years old, and um, I went home. I had a little efficiency apartment, little roll-out bed, couch bed, couch bed, and I was there by myself. And all of a sudden, this language flowed out of me. And I thought, wow, what is this? And I was very excited about it, didn't understand it, but I had a peace about it. And told people at the meeting the next time that this had happened to me. I said, oh, it's happened to us too. And then about a year later, I found out that it was controversial and that I shouldn't be doing it. And that it was of the devil. So I thought, okay, well, I'm sitting there worshiping Jesus and it happens to me. How can that be the devil? So, but you'll notice, I don't make it a front burner issue here. And you don't have to be afraid of me. I'm not going to look at you and speak in tongues. I, I, I just have had this prayer. And I pray in my prayer language all the time as a way to converse with God. There's times I don't know what to pray, so I let that prayer language flow through me. And I know that he prays for the will of God for me in ways I don't know how to. But please follow me. Do all speak with tongues? No. Does that mean that those who don't speak with tongues aren't baptized in the Holy Spirit? No. James Robinson doesn't speak in tongues, but Betty does. They told me that at the conference I was at a few weeks ago. James says, I don't speak in tongues. And I, don't, I think I don't speak in tongues to drive some of you who do speak in tongues crazy. He says, but Betty speaks in tongues, don't you, Betty? And she says, yes, I do, I do. <laughs> but I'm just saying, here you've got a couple. Now, you can't tell me James Robinson's not filled with the Spirit. Billy Graham never spoke in tongues. You can't tell me Billy Graham wasn't filled with the Spirit or, and baptized in the Spirit, had the power of the Spirit. No. You don't have to speak in tongues. You get to. If you want to, you can ask God for it. It encourages us in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. We're told don't forbid to speak with tongues. So we don't forbid it. Many in our church have that gift. Many don't. I don't. No way those who have it look down on those who don't or vice versa, I hope. But God gives, it says the Spirit gives to each member severally as he wills. So can you pray for it and ask God for it? Sure. I just want you to understand that there's two kinds and they're both legitimate. And they didn't go away with the first century. Say, amen, Pastor Jeff, preach it. Come on. It's so quiet in here.
Oh, gosh. Let me just finish this one, and, I, and we're done. Can you all do one more? Well, that was five of you. Can I do one more? All right. I got this email from somebody out of the state. Some people in the community where I worship. This is from California. Since it's from California, this will make more sense to you. <laughs> Some people in the community where I worship believe that they're able to lay on a gravesite to receive an impartation of anointing from the bodies that are lying on the ground. Like I said, it's from... Hi, California. We've got watchers in California. We love you. <laughs> then the person says, I don't agree with that act at all. I believe that God knows the desires of our heart. And if we're searching out for more anointing, then we can just ask him for it. The people that believe in that say there is 100% reference in the book of Ezekiel 37. But I don't understand how that relates at all. And this person's right. I can't, I wrote back. I can't for the life of me find any reference in Ezekiel 37 to the practice of lying on a grave to receive an anointing from a dead person. Ooh. Where'd you go last night? I went down to the graveyard, man. Laid on a grave. Where do people come up with this stuff? Oh, gosh. Okay. Here's what I wrote. Nevertheless, it is an occultic practice similar to what a witch or a medium would practice. Leviticus 19.31, Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Familiar spirits are those who communicate with dead, the dead, mediums. Isaiah 8.19, And when they shall say to you, Seek them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? Yes. This practice is found nowhere in the New Testament. We don't live in the Old Covenant, but in the New. What God led the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel to do was strictly in the form of object lessons for Israel and Judah. Ezekiel also laid on his side for 390 days straight. He ate barley cakes cooked over cow manure. And burned his own hair. Are they going to do that too? Let's go burn some hair. Hey, you got any barley cooked with manure? Ezekiel did it. Isn't it crazy? It's so stupid. So I wrote back and I ended it with this. Watch out for that stuff. Come home. <laughs> no, let's stand together, can we? You ought to be in my shoes for one week. In church in the morning, she shot him that night. I tell you, there's never a boring day when you're pastoring. Can we raise our hands? And let's just thank the Lord. Lord, we thank you for illumination. We thank you for your blessing. We thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for the goodness of God. Thank you, Lord, that we need to be people of the Word. Above all else, your truth trumps experience thy word is truth and we thank you for helping us Lord to walk in the truth of it can we just pray to him right now to say Lord guide me by your word order my steps in your word 
and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. In Jesus' name.